0: You're preparing yourself to be a really great athlete and great at your sport, but that is not health. And that's what I try and preach now to my clients. A lot of people will be like, oh, you're so great, you're an Olympic weightlifter. They always complimented that aspect of me. So losing that was very difficult, but now I'm so much healthier than I was a year ago when I was at the highest of my sport. So I really think the higher level athlete you are, almost the unhealthier human you are. You're not a healthy human. You're
1: listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Lena Kanner, welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. You are a trainer in the city near and dear to my heart, New York City. And we probably have crossed paths or probably have similar clients. We definitely have the same functional medicine doctor, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. <laughs> and you work with some really interesting clients. And you know, we all come to our journey either through our own struggles or through helping a population that probably is similar to us in helping them overcome their struggles. And I'd love to hear, your story of, you know, what a lot of us do it in New York of like work hard, play hard, train too hard or overtrain, and how we kind of dig ourselves out of that hole.
0: Sure. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on. I am very grateful and excited to be here. And yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. And yes, I'm in this crazy city of New York for now. <laughs> um, for now, I know, like all of us. <laughs> So, I grew up as a gymnast and that kind of instilled a lot of discipline and a very hard working environment and just in myself I was always a very hard working individual and I actually went to when I went to graduate school I went to University of Arkansas and I became a certified athletic trainer. And in that time period I also played around with bodybuilding and I learned a lot about the strength training, just different types of strength training. And after Arkansas, I moved back home started my business, started off at an Equinox first, and then ended up actually going into more of a personal training. So my background and my history is more injury management. And that's kind of what I tell clients when they come to me. But I also think that there's a very important spectrum from injury management to strength training. And you have to go in order to actually help people's injuries you have to do some strength training. So, I took what I learned in Arkansas, I took what I learned as a certified athletic trainer and I merge it with personal training and now this is where I'm at. I have had my own struggles but I've used it definitely like you just said to kind of better myself and better my clients. So you're saying you can't
1: only massage every single injury to get it better or or ultrasound and stim? How's that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or you can't just lay on a table horizontal and and fix it.
0: No, but interestingly enough, we did that for athletic training with these top level athletes. And I look back and I'm like, wow, if I knew then what I know now, I probably could have made these athletes so much better. So
1: I know it's crazy. It's same with me. When I first started practicing, it was like everyone got adjusted because that's all I knew. Yeah. What were you doing in terms of overtraining? Was it like too many days or three hour workouts? Was it six days a week,
0: seven days a week? What was the element that was too much? So when I moved back to New York, I had started in Arkansas, I started playing around with Olympic weightlifting. So that's a pretty stressful sport in itself. And at first it just started off as I just really enjoyed it. I was good at it, but I didn't want to coach it. And I knew I wanted to work with people that were wanting to just get, be healthy and just be strong and get over their injuries and move better. So I went into Olympic weightlifting. I came home, started competing And along with that my schedule shifted so I was working throughout the day at an equinox but really crazy hours And then I started training when I was training I was training at night And so I'd train from like 7 to 10 get home like eat Yeah, and at 10 p.m. I'm like eating carbs and Going to sleep at like one in the morning and then waking up at like three four in the morning to get to work the next day So I was really not sleeping. So is it was it over? Yeah, (laughs) I pushed myself. I thought it was normal (laughs) we're New Yorkers. Exactly. So I did that for like a year ish. And then, I mean, I'd say when I was really at my worst, I was training at least 15, sometimes 20 hours a week, but the training Olympic weightlifting is so explosive, so intense. And it just definitely took a toll on me, but so did so many other life factors. So what does your training look like now? completely different. So a year ago, I stopped Olympic weightlifting. I was at like the highest level of my career. I was ready to go to nationals, right about to go to a meet in Florida to qualify. I was two weeks away and I had to stop Olympic weightlifting. This is before I was with Dr. Lion. And so I stopped Olympic weightlifting, took some time off, just needed to regroup, went hiking, did some bike riding, kind of reset my mindset. And then- But why did you stop? two weeks before. Yeah. So I was not feeling great, not sleeping. And I was at a doctor who told me my thyroid was not great. My hormone, my Dutch test came back, not great. And they told me I had to stop Olympic weightlifting immediately. So I stopped. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. So I stopped right before like the highlight of my career. So mentally that was really tough as an athlete. I look at it now as such a blessing. I
1: feel like most people who are training and putting all those hours in would not stop, right? They'd be like, you know what? I'll just get through the next two weeks and then like my thyroid can hopefully, fingers crossed, recover.
0: Yeah, so it was probably like January, February where I knew that I was going to have to stop, but I didn't want to admit it to myself. And then by June, I stopped. So it, it definitely took some time. And I'd say by a month ago, two months ago, I finally feel like, okay, I've moved on with Olympic weightlifting and I'm not an Olympic weightlifter anymore. I did it for three years very competitively and it taught me a lot, but I love where I'm at right now. So now I train completely differently. So what's your training look like now? So I try and train every day at least, because at least if I tell myself I'm training every day, then maybe once or twice a week, it ends up being a rest day. I try and move every day. I either bike ride for an hour or I lift for an hour. Right now we're in a quarantine, so that's a little difficult, but I have some kettlebells, so I'm doing a lot of kettlebell work. And I'm just playing around with movement. I'm trying to understand how my body cannot be so extended and try and get it into a better position when I'm actually training and lifting in a healthier manner, playing around with just different aspects of what I'm learning and trying to implement them into training. So
1: it sounds like you tested your thyroid when you were like at the height of the Olympic lifting. Have you tested your thyroid since, since kind of dialing it back a little bit?
0: Yeah. So even, so I originally tested it. It was low about a year ago. Was, some of my numbers were low. Now it's completely normal.
1: Awesome. Did you have any presence of like thyroid antibodies?
0: No. Oh, good. Which was really interesting. I know Dr. Line when I first met her, she was like, I'm kind of shocked you don't have any antibodies. I was like, me too. <laughs> What did your Dutch test look like? Oh, My cortisone, my first test, my cortisone was really high. My cortisol was pretty high, but my cortisone was just super overworked over there. And a lot of my stuff came back just all over the place. My progesterone was very low, testosterone was very low. So my, a lot of my hormones just weren't working in order for my cortisol to keep producing, to keep me Olympic weightlifting. <laughs> I'm not an Olympic weightlifter. Is this a common pattern
1: that you see in the Olympic weightlifting community?
0: I don't know, but what I would think would be a very interesting study would be to test that because I know a lot of Olympic weightlifters, men and females, but I think females especially have a lot of anxiety. They don't sleep well and they're always... we were training five times a week and the training sessions are two to three hours They're not just an hour you're sitting a lot but I really that would be a very interesting study and maybe something I'll look into one day because I really think that it would come back with a lot of us having similar readings
1: I didn't know that uh, it was such a high frequency and also duration of training I mean I know you're not like literally moving for two hours straight but still two hours to like keep your head in it with like dialing in your form, especially with ballistic moves is, that's a lot.
0: On some days, I remember I counted one day how many snatches I did in a snatch workout and I did 105 snatches with heavy load, like 85%. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, you're preparing yourself to be a really great athlete and great at your sport, but that is not health. And that's what I try and preach now to my clients. A lot of people will be like, oh, you're so great. You're an Olympic weightlifter. They always complimented that aspect of me. So losing that was very difficult. But now I'm so much healthier than I was a year ago when I was at the highest of my sport. So I really think the higher level athlete you are, almost the unhealthier human you are. You're not a healthy human. Which I think a lot of people
1: don't know. They assume like high level come in one, two, three, and like Boston, New York city marathon, or, you know, people who win the CrossFit games that like, Oh, they must be like so healthy. It's like, well, no, they're usually injured. They're usually over I'm sure there are things that are off probably hormone and cortisol wise. They're genetically gifted to be able to sustain that. But they're, the longevity of that training is, there's no longevity to it
0: it's not sustainable. You can't train like that long-term. And I see athletes going until they're in their forties, fifties. And I'm just thinking, why don't you just strength train in an optimal way? People don't know. So there's that, but I definitely think just strength training efficiently for the human body to work the most optimal way possible is the best way to exercise. And there's a difference between sports and exercise.
1: Yeah. When you say strength train efficiently, and I know that will be different for people's different baseline and starting point. But when you say
0: that, can you kind of get like more granular on what you mean by that? Definitely. So if I have a new client come in, of course, I'm going to assess them. And I'm looking for a lot of different things in my assessment, such as movement variability. Can they move their rib cage in different ways? You know, how's their eye movement? Because sometimes that really has to do with where they can feel weight in their body. And if they have all these little prerequisites, then we can kind of move into strength training and moving into those patterns. So something I really think is important is being able to shift our hips. And if you can shift your hips and you can load them efficiently and better than not being able to shift your hips. And when we we walk, we shift our hips. So being able to load the body in a way that is efficient in our gait and walking pattern, I think is the, one of the foundations of being able to strength train somebody more efficiently for for movement for optimal movement does that make sense yeah
1: i mean i think a lot of programming is symmetrical right like a squat a deadlift even when you push and pull sometimes it's not in like that split stance or asymmetrical stance and i think it gets overprogrammed that symmetrical stance like if we did almost more asymmetrical stance or a split stance like how much better would we be on our feet in life?
0: I agree so much. And it's not all about bench press and and deadlift and squat. Those are great lifts. And I've squatted very heavy in my life, but did I feel great when I was squatting that heavy? No, were my legs strong? Yes, but are they just as strong now doing heavy loaded split squats? Yeah, and they're probably stronger. And the split squat movement's gonna transfer way better into my walking pattern. And I'm probably going to feel less pain long-term if I really train a split squat than a bilateral squat, where maybe in my bilateral squat, my right side is stronger, so I'm shifting to the right. It May- might be slight, but that could be the difference between somebody feeling a little more right hip pain. So yeah. it's interesting. Yeah.
1: What did you do in terms of your training? So obviously you dialed it down to less hours. And I'm curious, you know, you mentioned trying to get your ribs in the right position. (laughs) So what, what are you playing with in your own body to get that? Because I know many, many women were kind of in that like rib flare, sway back, booty pop, suck the belly to the spine positioning. I think just culturally we're like, you know, skinny, the waistline, whatever. But what are you doing to, for yourself, especially as a gymnast, right? Gymnasts are like (laughs) stuck in extension. (laughs) Yes.
0: What are you doing to get out of that? So I, around the same time that I was still doing Olympic weightlifting, I took my first PRI course. And so I really started learning more about PRI. I'd say in the last year, I've really studied it because I couldn't study it that much while I was an Olympic weightlifter because I couldn't feel things properly because I was so extended. I'm still very extended. (laughs) I've done gymnastics for 15 years of my life. It's not going to be one year of studying the stuff where I'm going to feel really great and get out of that position but with the rib flare a lot of people's rib cages are up and why is that so bad it's it's not necessarily terrible we need to be able to have movement variability so we need to be able to move our rib cage down and think about our ribs kind of giving themselves a hug so that they can fully fully exhale in order for our diaphragm to work appropriately and that's really like the key so with my own training a lot of the stuff i do is try and get my rib cage back so if it's a split squat even, maybe I'm reaching one arm forward and I'm holding a weight in my other arm, but me reaching that right arm forward, let's say, or left arm forward would be a better example. If I'm reaching the left arm forward, my left rib cage would actually shift it down and in a little bit more. So I'm thinking about that. The other things I might be doing are playing with the breath while I'm training. Now, I don't do this with all my clients just because it depends on where they are within their training. But with myself, I really focus. I know for me, the right chest wall is pretty tightened down and I need to get some air in there. So what I do is when I'm doing a single arm press or bench press on the right side, I'll inhale into the right and then I'll press up. So if I'm inhaling and I'm pulling my right arm back to give people a visual, as you pull the right arm back, the chest wall on the right side will stretch out. And if I'm inhaling, I'm directing the air into the right chest wall. So a big thing is we, in our society, I think we talk a lot about belly breathing. And instead of a belly breath, I really focus on trying to teach people how to fully, fully exhale, get their ribs to kind of come together Get the ribs down and then sneak the air up all the way into their chest wall and into their posterior, their back rib cage. And that's been interesting for my own training. And I'm very used to it now. It's my daily training. But for new clients that come to me, they're always mind blown.
1: Yeah. So to get granular on this, because I also study PRI, how do you translate that exhale when you're under heavy load? Right? Because you want to brace. Which can be cued in many different ways, but under load, it's interesting. Like, how do you carry the corrective exercise to a place under load?
0: Yeah. So if you're thinking like super heavy load. So if I'm doing a it really can't that much do it on a bilateral. You can do it bilateral. So let's say I'm thinking bench press. I'm just gonna think regardless, I'm inhaling as I'm going down, exhaling as I'm pushing up, but When the weight gets too heavy, it's gonna overcome your brain's thought process on, oh, I should breathe more on this side versus this side. So it's really the goal dependent. If I'm trying to push the weight on a person or if I'm trying to do like a conditioning workout with somebody at the end of a session, I'm not so focused on form as much. I'm not so focused on, are they breathing properly at this time? But during the skill work where it's maybe a little bit lighter, but there's still load, then you can focus a little more on it or sometimes it's load placement. If I want somebody to load their left leg a little more, I might give them the kettlebell doing a split squat on the left hand. And then maybe if we switch the split squat and their right leg is in forward, I might keep that kettlebell in their left hand because it's just going to load their left side a little more. So there's different tricks you can do, but if you're talking super, super heavy load, a very heavy back squat, you almost can't Always transition that breathing, just because the load is so high, it's your brain is like, ah, oh, what's happening? Yeah. So there's a balance.
1: Yeah. Do you ever play with doing things more front loaded, for example, like front squats, goblet squats, double rack goblet squats, versus to like keep the rib cage integrated? Yeah. Versus like trying to load the bar in the back that can maybe predispose you to that rib flare.
0: Yeah. So me personally, I've done a lot of back squats, and this the last few months, I only focused on front squats. I stopped. Well, I couldn't really because of the quarantine. But in general, even when we had a gym, I decided, you know, I'm only going to do front squats. I'm really going to try and front load myself. And it really changed how my rib cage moves and how I feel load. So if you're doing a front squat and you're not feeling your abs, you're most likely not in the optimal position for your body. So sometimes you can elevate the heels and you might feel muscles working differently. So I I even with my clients now, I don't really have anybody back squatting. And there's nothing wrong with a back squat. I never want to say there's something wrong with an exercise or it's a bad exercise. It's not. I just don't think it's optimal for the human who wants to have a really healthy life. Yeah. It's interesting to see
1: people who are stuck in extension, right? And have This anxiety, right? Like they kind of feel like airy, like you want to ground them. And then you help them get their ribs down and they feel more grounded and they don't come in all like crazy, you know, feeling anxious. Um, And it's interesting because I think from a mental health perspective, we go at it or the medical profession goes at it from kind of like cognitive behavioral or, you know, starting from the head versus starting down lower and getting someone grounded physically. And I see that transformation a lot. I'm sure you do too with your clients.
0: I do. I think that's a a really good point because there's a lot of things that may contribute to an anxiety level with somebody. So for example, for me, when I was back squatting super heavy, snatching, always in extension, my anxiety was through the roof. And then I stopped doing that. And we did some other things too. It's not only one approach, but I think sure therapy can help, but I think you have to tackle it from all these different ways. And if you're walking around in New York City and you're having problems with the sounds going and you're super stressed out, your ribs are all the way up to your earlobes, maybe it's time to take a step back and think about, okay, what is my body doing? Am I grounded with the earth? And when I see it all the time, exactly like you just said, some client will come in super stressed out. They had a really crazy day. And the first 10 minutes of my session, I really try and focus on breathing. And after the first 10 minutes, now they can train because they're not so focused on their day. Yes, it's a different environment than they were where they were at their crazy job, but we just also got their ribs down. And so now everything, now their muscles are functioning better. So there's so many benefits to being able to get out of that very extended position. Yeah,
1: and you just got them into the parasympathetic, like that calm, like everything okay, is okay place. You recently, I think it was recently, did you take Gary Ward's course, Anatomy Emotion?
0: I'm taking it right now. Oh, you're taking
1: it right now. Oh, fun. Oh, okay, cool. Because I've noticed on your Instagram, you've been talking a lot about pronation and supination and wedges in the Instagram stories. Can you talk about how using anatomy emotion and some of Gary's work has changed maybe what you're doing in your own body as well as with your clients?
0: Yeah. So it's made me aware of people's foot mechanics a little more. And it's made me aware of what that person's static foot posture is. And if I can get some more information, some deeper, a deeper look at how that person sits with their upper body, with their upper chain, their knees, where's their knee at, where's their hip at, just by looking at their foot. And what's very interesting, and I think a lot of people have a hard time pronating. And I think that it's been marked bad in our society. So if people don't know what pronation is, it's basically where your arch of the the midline part of your foot is flattening out. And as you're flattening the arch out, that heel is actually kind of lifting back just a little bit. And when you pronate, it's a part of that gait cycle. So we hit our heel on the ground and then we kind of flatten our arch and then we have the toe off phase. So if you're missing that entire... part of the gait cycle and you're just on the outside of your foot for the hall gait cycle. I think it also it's what we were just talking about with grounding. If you can't pronate, you're going to have a lot of other issues up the chain. You're going to and it really can I think contribute to anxiety. Obviously that's not proven, but I'm seeing it with my clients. So the aim course has been great just to, I think he breaks it down so well. It's super basic with the Showing the muscles and how they function, and his viewpoint of them, but also the idea of using the wedges to help get somebody into being able to pronate better and help them transfer that into walking and gait mechanics. And if you can do that while walking, we take hundreds of steps today. I think it's twenty-two thousand, maybe even more, and if you can do that with walking and now we can load you even better, we can train you even more efficiently because you're able to access all those movements while you're walking. So now you can access them in the gym.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love that. Chris, who works with Gary, talks about how aim is not another tool in the toolbox, that it is the toolbox that everything else comes into, which is, I think, a really interesting kind of mindset shift to look at, you know, how every joint moves through every single phase of gait. Yeah.
0: I think it's interesting how you can look at somebody's walking pattern and, okay, you're doing one thing on one side. You're kind of doing the opposite thing on the other side and seeing what the foot does and how that correlates into the knee movement and how that correlates into the hip movement. and you know, everything really is connected and it's all about balancing it out. You have to be able to pronate, but you also have to be able to supinate. You have to be able to move your pelvis in different directions. We have to get in and out of stress. Like stress is an important thing for us. I think that a lot of our society focuses on this parasympathetic, but we need to be able to move in and out or else when you're being chased, you need to you need to turn that stress response on at the right time. So it's the same with movement. I think it goes back to a lot of things. It's always this balance.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I was asking Chris and Gary, I was like, when do you breathe through the movement? And they're like, just breathe when you breathe. And I was like, every single like, other you know, discipline is like, breathe here, breathe this long, inhale here. Even when we're cueing our clients, right? Is like, when do you exhale to get out of the squat, out of the hole? And I found that really interesting. It was like, just let the breath come when it wants to come, which is very counterintuitive to, I think, being in rehab and being in strength where you're like trying to cue it and
0: get it to happen when you want it to happen in your clients. Yeah, that is interesting. But I do think there's a place for it to just breathe whenever you're supposed to breathe. I think the more you work on it, and you focus on it, and I'm not talking about like those yoga classes where they're just pushing belly breaths. I'm talking about really keeping your ribs down and sneaking the air up into your chest, expanding your chest, expanding your back, your back ribs. The more you do that when you're focusing on it, like every day, 10 minutes, let's say, it's going to just transfer into your daily life without you thinking about it. So then when you go to an AIM course and you've been working on this, now you can breathe whenever you want because your breathing naturally, your natural breathing is gonna be more of an optimal breath.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Recently you shared a photo of a transformation on your own body of, I think it was a, it was like a skin rash down your shin. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it was like pre and post working with Gabrielle.
0: Yeah. Can you share what that was? Sure. I can go deeper into it too. So that post, everybody loved it. And basically I've had eczema since I was very, very young, my entire life. I think my mom said when I was like a month or two old, and that's kind of what my eczema looked like. So we treated a lot of different things in my gut, starting from parasites, because Dr. Lyon likes to treat that, and then SIBO and some other things going on with my gut. And it's been interesting to see how the eczema has changed throughout the treatments. So Originally like the first doctor I was with was never going to even look at my gut So I think it's amazing that I found her that she was able to do that for me Because the transformation has been miraculous because i've had eczema since I was a kid I've tried everything. I tried allergy shots I tried everything you can imagine and I had it really bad all over my body And it's something that as a kid you're self-conscious about too. So now In my 20s, I finally figured it out better late than never But I don't really have, I get spots here and there, maybe with stress or some gut things that are still healing. But if you really dive deep into the gut, you can really eliminate these skin situations or even stomach situations that people have. And I think so many people just focus on the actual skin. You go to a dermatologist, they give you topicals, doesn't really do anything longer than three days. So it's been a journey, but I've learned a lot in the process.
1: Yeah. Was there a certain thing in terms of that kind of treatment hierarchy that you talked about that made the biggest difference? Was it like, oh my God, the parasites? Or was it, oh, the SIBO fight? Like, or was it kind of a little bit of everything?
0: It's a little bit of everything, but I'd say after I treated the SIBO, the eczema completely changed. So, you know, eczema is known to be like a flaky skin rash. I never had it as a flaky skin rash. And then when I, treated the SIBO about three weeks later, four weeks later, it became very different and it it kind of just eliminated slowly. And it was very strange, but it used to I used to just get kind of like bumps. So I think it's still like a little bit of a journey of now what I'm doing to keep my gut healed and not have a lot of leaky gut going on. But the changes are are awesome. And for people that are struggling with this, I think just knowing that there is a solution, not to just sit and suffer. So I'm just that type of person that's going to find out the root, whether it's an injury or whether it's health. I think it's very important to dive forward and learn on the way and find out what's really going on deeper.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, people love a good skin post. My I, I came to Gabrielle with eczema, was like the original thing too. Yeah, I had also posted and it was like <sighs> lots of – Likes on the skin post. Did you notice training changed with healing different gut things? For example, like when I see a lot of women who are really bloated, getting them to strength train is an uphill battle.
0: I wouldn't say it changed with the eczema, but I would say my strength training changed and got better as I just got treated because my anxiety lessened and. I wasn't as stressed out in general because I was treating it from two ways. Now I'm treating it in a functional medicine standpoint and I'm treating it through movement. So, I'm treating my body like really like a temple, <laughs> trying to make it really heal in with nothing in its path. And I think that as I continue to strength train and changed my training from Olympic weightlifting very explosive to doing absolutely no explosive training. I didn't do any plyometrics, no jumping. I stopped doing like rowing classes for a little bit because those were very high intensity. I took out everything high intensity for at least six months. And I noticed, I gained a lot of weight actually. And then I now have lost a lot of it without really trying. So it's interesting in that aspect, I think it changed. I also changed my diet a little bit. And so I definitely think approaching it from different aspects, you know, your body can heal. It's just your body can heal if it's given the right things to heal.
1: Yeah. You've worked with some populations that have autoimmune conditions. Is there been a consistent kind of theme amongst those clientele that you've worked with?
0: Not necessarily avoidance of movement, but scared to move. I think a lot of people are scared to move. They're scared to put their body in certain positions. And you have to just slowly give them the feedback they need. You have to do isometrics. I do that a lot. So isometric is something where your strength training, technically, you're, there is a bit of your bot, you're not moving, but there's resistance happening within, in the joint or however the exercise, whatever the exercise is. And I think with autoimmune, a lot of times people, they're so scared of their body, like almost rebelling against them that they're scared to move. So they don't let themselves. So they either don't move which is just going to make it worse or they are very tentative with their movements and eventually if you keep moving even if it's tentative if you keep moving keep letting yourself get there every time it will get better so that's something i definitely see and i can understand that cuz i understand when me as an athlete myself i've been in pain and i've had injuries i understand that when you've had pain or when your body kind of fails you it's very hard to trust that part of your body, to trust it in completion. And I think giving a little bit of feedback here and there, it's the best way to heal an injury too, just a little bit. And eventually they will move past that. They just have to give themselves the confidence they need.
1: Yeah. I think it's really common in the autoimmune population because of the joint pain and the muscle aches to kind of default to moving less. And I know Craig Liebenson talks about like the motion is the lotion (laughs) to the joints (laughs) in terms of feeling better. Yeah. I think that idea of like little by little, almost like baby steps. Yeah. Which can feel like a really long process in terms of healing because we just want to feel better quickly,
0: you know? Can But those feel better quickly when people actually do take the route to feel better quickly. I think it backfires. If you take those little steps, you're long-term going to be better off. It's with pain and it's with getting into strength training too. You're not going to go zero to a hundred on a workout when you haven't worked out in six months. You got to do it slow. I mean, the people that do that, they'll probably be very sore the next day. Yes, (laughs) For like
1: probably five days, maybe seven days. Yeah,
0: Not ideal. Not
1: ideal. We were talking about working with someone with Lyme's disease. Was it chronic Lyme? Yeah. How did you kind of program? Because I know fatigue is a really big aspect of that along with the autoimmune population is like kind of like this fine line of programming where you want to be able to push your capacity enough to stimulate the muscle and get some perceived exertion, but you don't want to just push them into like they can't get out of bed for three days.
0: Yeah. So you, it's, it's a balance. It always goes back to that. And it's the same with injury too. You're going to push them to almost at their limit and then you can back off the next training session and then push them again and see if their limit has raised a little bit. And then back off. And every time the limit can kind of raise. It's the same. The same way I would program for somebody dealing with chronic fatigue is the same way I'd almost program for somebody dealing with an injury. We're gonna try these movements. If one bothers you, okay, let's just back off. And let's do something that maybe makes you feel better in the moment, or we just kind of just relax a little bit, take a couple breaths. You know, I really use breathing if I feel it necessary, even in the middle of a session, if somebody is really struggling. My sessions are different. So it's, it really depends on the person. I have people that are coming to me specifically to work on just breathing work and just injury work. And a lot of that can be using aim and using some of the wedges just dependent on the person. Or I have people that are doing a little bit of breathing in the beginning, five, 10 minutes, and now we're training. So it's, it's very person specific, but autoimmune, that's really how I approach it. A little bit here, a little get to the limit and then back off.
1: Yeah. If there were like three things you wish all of your clients did across the board to feel better in their body, maybe it's optimized for longevity, what would it be?
0: What would those three things be? Take time to focus on themselves and breathe. That would be the first one. The second one would be eat protein and eat animal protein. And I think that is huge. I have a bunch of clients that eat, I try not to insert how I feel about it. But I really, really believe that animal meats can make a very big difference in healing. And the third thing would be just to have fun. I think people don't have enough fun and smile, laugh a little.
1: That's a good one. I wasn't expecting that last one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How has training clients changed through stay-at-home orders and quarantine?
0: A lot of trainers don't like it. I'm actually indifferent. I kind of really enjoy the online training because I can reach a lot more people. Training people in Colorado and Australia, and I never had that access before. So I really enjoy it, but it definitely has been very different. I've had clients that got absolutely no equipment and I'm using a bag of, uh, a Lululemon bag with filled with books and cans of beans to train them. So I've had to get a little more creative very grateful when a client has some equipment that I can use, but it just goes to show that you really don't need a gym, even for myself I've stayed really healthy, I think I've kept most of my muscle mass on, and i the most I have is twenty six pounds so wow. I have two though so okay <laughs> <laughs> like I did two of
1: those yeah okay I two, two like twelve kilo kettlebells,
0: yeah, okay, yeah, so you can work with that.
1: do you have any thoughts on Gyms being closed in New York.
0: I really, truly believe that in order for us as a society and the way that America is with the obesity rates, I really, really believe that in order to protect our immune system, in order to be healthy, we need gyms to reopen and people need to eat better. I really think that that's the key to making things better. That's my personal opinion.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. Yeah.
0: I think that our health needs to be the top level of everyone. Everyone's thoughts should be on their health right now. And in order to protect your immune system, you should be exercising and you should be eating really healthy and supporting your immune system. So, I, yeah, I think gyms should be open.
1: I think it's a message that's missed. You know, it's like the masks, the hand washing, the social distancing. But like, I, I can't tell you how many clients I've seen who have been sitting on their couch eating potato chips for three months and have gained 30 pounds and are like used to being in the gym and they didn't have that access and they didn't know how to create it at home and they didn't seek help. And now, you know, their, their health is, is suffering, right? Fat is inflammatory and
0: really the gym was their outlet. I think that's a problem. And I think it's really not covered nowhere on the media. Yeah. And the people that are pushing for gyms to be reopened are really talking about the benefits that they can cause, not just about the people being around. I, I, I really think that opening gyms, having people exercise, talking more about nutrition would help us more than we even realize. Yeah, 100%. Where can people find you? So I am on Instagram and it's my name at Alina Canner. And I also have a podcast, which you're gonna be on next week and we're very excited to have you. And that's Move Your Brain, Move Your Body. And my website, it's the same thing, just my name, Alina Kanner.
1: Awesome, thank you so much. Super fun.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, All feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.